I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you Josh Clemente is a former SpaceX engineer and now the founder of Levels, which is the metabolic health startup changing the way people live their lives. Prior to Levels, Josh was also on the team at Hyperloop One and is a CrossFit Level 2 trainer. On this episode, Josh dives into what he learned working alongside Elon Musk, how the fully remote team at Levels is building a massive business, and what he's learned raising over $12 million from investors like Mark Andreessen. Anyone looking for a new job this year, or are you a company who's looking to hire great talent? If so, you might want to check out the job hiring platform, Culture Finders. I'm sure you're thinking, what's different about Culture Finders compared to the other job hiring platforms? Well, other platforms only focus on your job skills and trying to match you with as many companies as possible. What Culture Finders does different is that they uncover the preferences, personalities, unique talents, and abilities that make up each job seeker and matches them with the company that these traits best align. It's not about sending 100 jobs, but about connecting you with the right job. We know your value to companies goes beyond your resume, and it's time you find a company that sees yours. Job seekers create your free profile today at culturefinders.com. And if you're a company hiring, you get a free job posting today. That's culturefinders.com. Oh yeah, just so you guys know, Culture Finders and What Got You There is actually hiring right now. So jump on culturefinders.com to create your free profile and hopefully we'll be working together soon. Josh, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Sean. Thank you. Yeah, I am honored to get to talk to you, learn from you, uh, understand a lot of the different things that have made you both successful and then also how you're building for the future. But one of the things I'm really interested in, is there one thing that you do during your day that you think just brings the most benefits to your life? Yeah, this one, um, you know, I've kind of felt a, a variety of things contribute, but the biggest for me consistently is exercise, just finding space. Um, it's not just about the physical component, but being able to like separate from whatever tasks I'm stressing about at that time and go and do something specifically for me. And I think that process of just like creating that deliberate space allows me to really collect my thoughts and, and kind of center myself. So I would say that that is the most consistent, um, technique I use. I'm the same way when, when I'm facing something difficult, nothing better than getting some exercise. I know you mentioned you went for a run this morning. How do you approach that? Just, we can call it staying balanced, right? Here you are hard charger to begin with leading a company, a startup. How do you balance that out that you make sure that you find time for yourself when things can kind of get, get hectic and get out of your way? It's complicated. And, um, you know, for sure, everyone who is working on something that other people are relying on or are a part of, you, you get a really overwhelming sense of responsibility to just always be pushing and never take time away. So the recognition that your own health and well-being is part of the end goal, like it is crucial to whatever success you're working on. If you burn out, if you fail as a, you know, on a personal level, you won't be able to achieve what you're trying to achieve for, for everyone else. So that, that's like the first step is just recognizing this is intrinsic to the end success. And then, um, and then using calendaring, you know, the real tactical component of this is just blocking it off on the calendar so that every day, like I know I've got a window of opportunity. If I miss that window, that's on me, but no one's going to schedule over that. And no one's going to take that time, you know, you know, obviously forbidding uh, an emergency, but that's, that's something that is really key is just saying like, 
this is on my calendar and it doesn't move. So if somebody tries to schedule over it, sorry, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to shift that. <laughs> it's always intriguing hearing about what people do. I'm really interested. Are there certain things that you might've done even for a long time? And then you finally realize this wasn't bringing that much benefit and it's time to eliminate. That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I've been really going through, this is a very different sort of product experience and development process and, and really company building experience than, than anything I've been a part of before. So I'm going through a totally experimental, uh, I think, adaptation right now where I'm going from a hardware world where things are very like long iteration cycles and um, and I'm very much a, in a maker, you know, eventually manager role, but but tr- traditionally just working on some some large projects to really being in the constant contact switching environment where it's, you have to stay on, you know, stay on your toes and, and be adaptive. And I'm learning a lot, especially from my co-founders who have done this before and have been multi-time uh, founders and entrepreneurs, just about the the techniques that are important. And, and for me, I've always kind of needed to preserve long blocks of time to think and do deep work. And, and so one of the biggest things that I thought that was key to having a good outcome is just like spending continuous focus time. Um, but now I'm recognizing that it's very project specific and like it, what my responsibility is in this company is to provide resources for the team and to, to con- continue to grow the team. And it may not necessarily be that I dedicate long blocks to solving some, some program need or some project need. In fact, I need to like unblock other people who are better at that. And so I'm, I'm really like reassessing my own role in, in just the organization and, and how a good product is built and recognizing that, you know, really the way you allocate your time kind of depends on the project you're working on and, and your responsibility set within it. I'm intrigued there about mentioning unlocking other people. And I mean, that's, that's essential in terms of being a leader. How do you understand the bigger system that it, that it takes to unlock someone if you're not getting that deep work? If that's something that, that you thought was just so important previously. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it certainly is something that I still need. I, I need that deep strategic thinking time, but really it used to be continuous where any disruption was a disruption. And now it's um, recognizing that I have to segment my my time. And I certainly can't, What I, one thing I know about myself is that I can't mix those two. So I can't have, you know, a block of deep work, you know, 30 minutes of that, and then 30 minutes of, you know, continuous switching calls or anything like that. You know, it has to be one day of the week, which is what I do. I, t- I take Tuesdays and I say, that's my deep work day. And uh, I'm going to just reflect and I'm going to focus on, uh, you know, writing down thoughts for memos for other people, or uh, generally just considering the strategic uh, application of my time and making sure that I'm constantly assessing and updating that. And then the rest of the week is typically more of a, more of a continuous, you know, managerial schedule where you're just taking whatever comes at you. And, uh, and so, yeah, I definitely need to preserve it, but, but now it's like 20% of my time or less, you know, 10, 10 to 20% of my time is spent in that deep mode. Whereas previously it was like, I would spend 10 to 20% in the context switching mode and everything else was deep problem solving. And, you know, I kind of thought that I'm the person that has to do, like, I just am the, the deep work person. But the reality is that you can, you can adjust to basically anything. You just got to recognize that it's going to be a bit uncomfortable at first. You're going to have to get used to it, try some new tools. And once you hit your stride, it feels good. Yeah. It's funny how that works, right? The, the adaptability, which is essential for, for any entrepreneur, but it's one of those muscles. It's like, once you start running towards that chaos, essentially, and kind of the the edges of what you're capable of, you realize how much more you're capable of. And then it almost becomes this positive feedback loop that you're looking for it more and more. I would love just diving a little bit more into your Tuesday, your deep work day, because I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening, myself included, that how do, you, how do you structure this? Is there any practices that you found beneficial during one of these deep work days? 
Yeah. I mean, I still very much use my calendar to block out chunks. So I, I don't just take it as like whatever I want to think about. It's very structured where I try to make sure that I've filled out an agenda of topics to focus on. And, you know, one thing I learned from my co-founder, Sam, is to-do lists don't work. You know, you can put infinite items on a to-do list, but the reality is that time is finite. And so if you only have Tuesday between certain hours to get your deep work in, you need to be realistic, you know, in, in terms of what you're committing to for the other team um, about what you can fit in that time. So I'm very, you know, I, I like to block out best estimates for what it'll take on whatever I'm focusing on. So if it's like putting together a candidate tracker for our hiring or putting an update on, you know, what our hardware strategy is going to be as an organization, I'm going to block those chunks out onto my deep work, my deep work day on my calendar. And I'm very, I try to be very, very committed to what I've laid out. And if something else pops up and I've already got those blocks on my calendar, I'm not just going to overlap them or squeeze them or something like that. It's like something has to be bumped and I need to convey that to whoever um, is, you know, whoever is downstream of that decision, right? To make sure that they're aware. So just being like, the calendar is, has been become uh, an indispensable tool for me because it shows me this is what you've committed to and this is what you can accomplish. You, you, I, I've sort of, I think that I've improved as a, as a person on my ability to predict what I can fit into a week because I, I have it all laid out in front of me and I have to be honest, like, yeah, I'm not going to get those two things done at the same time. So <laughs> one of them has to go. <laughs> in such a fluid environment, uh, the world of a startup, how do you assess what's the most important thing that's capturing your attention at that time? I think the biggest and most valuable piece here is having really high quality team members who can help you um, assess your own priorities, right? It, it's very easy to get distracted by a shiny object. And if you have multiple people who are gut checking that, uh, it's it's a huge benefit because the whole kind of group combined can, can maintain a, a predefined trajectory. So you lay out a quarterly strategy, you say, these are our objectives as an organization. And everyone has that in their minds. And then if one person says, oh, I actually think we need to detour to this other you know, thing that just cropped up. It's a really cool opportunity. It could provide huge benefit. Well, the rest of the team can provide you with a, a really nice, um, you know, sort of litmus test on whether that is as shiny as, as it may seem. And this happens all the time. You know, we have a great team. We have five co-founders at Levels and we all have a, a, a bit of a diverse, you know, skill set each. And so uh, conversations are really nice in the sense that there is typically someone who's closest to um, the background of a specific problem, we can rely on them for expertise. And then everyone else can kind of use their best judgment in terms of whether or not this seems like it should take priority. And, uh, and so I think that's, that's the biggest thing is just, if you're, if you're going it alone, it's really challenging. And I've, I've done solo projects before and looking back on them, I, you know, it is very scattered. You're, you're always looking for the edge that's going to get you ahead. You feel like you're constantly behind the, you know, the eight ball. And so something comes up, you just let so easy to get distracted by it. And I think we've been so much better at this company um, or just the rate of execution has been amazing. And I, I, I attribute that primarily to the diversity and multitudes of perspectives that are coming to every decision. Yeah. Those multiple perspectives, when you're able to triangulate your views against some other people, and it sounds like some very high performers, that's always going to be incredibly helpful. What exactly is the conversation like? Are you guys almost doing a red hat, green hat, where you're really challenging ideas, playing devil's advocate, or is it just an open exploration of ideas? Any, any more details into this? Well, Levels is a is a 100% remote company. We've been remote since before COVID. And, um, and so we had always decided we were going to lean into 
the the distributed model. And what we had to do is decide, you know, are we going to be a company that is spending all our time on meetings, trying to hash things out in real time, or are we going to take a different approach? And we chose to go with a memo-driven culture. So the way that these typically happen is we, we have a, a stand-up meeting for, for leadership at the, at the company at once a week. And then we have little tag-ups, you know, twice, uh, two other days of the week. And the tag-ups are typically 15 to 20 minutes. But we set the, the weekly agenda on, on that all, uh, sort of all leadership call. And we don't get, you know, we will discuss topics, but if it goes on, you know, if a topic conversation goes on, say past 10, 15 minutes, and it becomes clear that there's maybe disagreement or different perspectives, we identify a stakeholder. We say, this person is going to go do the research, write a memo, distribute to the team, and we'll then do asynchronous, uh, basically commenting on the document, or we'll all add our thoughts in long form. And so that allows each of us to really assess the problem, set aside the time we need to tackle it and put our thoughts down so that everyone else can assess, you know, those in context. And then we come to a, to a set of action items and we proceed. And the beauty of this is that the asynchronous nature means that not everyone has to set aside, you know, like an unknown amount of time to drive a problem to solution. And, and you get rid of this design by committee thing, which I think generally is not hyper efficient, right? So, so that memo culture with, with a lot of asynchronous stuff, and then just syncing continuously throughout the week to make sure if anything has any fires have have started that we can help you know balance that, those resources uh, is the approach we take i'm very fascinated by this one of my teams uh, we're fully distributed as well very similar type philosophy i would love to know in terms of the memo uh, for people who aren't familiar with how you structure this i know a lot of people are might be familiar with how amazon does it how does levels approach this so amazon typically uh, from what i can tell they they write Someone writes a memo and then distributes it prior to a meeting and everyone reads it. And, and that's oftentimes, I think, in the meeting, the first few minutes will be spent reviewing a memo kind of silently. And then, uh, and then, and then you start the conversation and you have a, a live synchronous meeting. Levels takes a more, an even more asynchronous approach than that. And some of this has to do with the fact that we're, you know, we're not co-located. We, we have different time zones. It's, it, it is just not generally efficient to try to force conformity into a schedule so that everyone's on the call at the same time and you're, and you're having a synchronous meeting. But really, we've taken an approach that's like, we, we don't have meetings, really. I mean, we, we've eliminated all, but like, as I mentioned, that, that one once a week leadership meeting, we have an all-hands meeting with the whole team uh, once a week. And then, and then two sync ups, which are not strategic. It's, it's more so just like checking in, making sure everything's okay. The rest of it is done asynchronously. And, and the, the beauty of these memos is that they are the entirety of the conversation. So if you are a new candidate, right, you're coming in, you're joining the company, you were just hired, you can go and review all of these memos and not only see the ultimate outcome <clears throat> in terms of strategy for the company, but you can see everyone's thoughts along the way. So you can kind of see the conversation that would have happened in that Amazon meeting, but it's written out in long form. And it definitely takes time. It, it, you have to be a good communicator. You have to be able to write um, effectively or get your thoughts out. But uh, I think the end result is that we have a really nice mile marker set that tells us how we got to where we are and why. And um, we can just d- distribute this really effectively in terms of, uh, you know, like I said, getting getting new team members up to speed, but also investors, strategic partners, you know, these memos are very valuable in, in a sense because they document uh, levels perspective on any issue. The, the way we approach this, uh, my team at Culture Finders, we view this as slow down to speed up. And it's kind of that upfront work to begin with, but but long-term, those benefits uh, so far out exceed what, what might've happened if you're just kind of flying by the seat of your pants there. I also love how you guys are 
working on that document at, at the same time, but on your own time, because where I think the Amazon model is slightly, slightly flawed is that you, you read something and it instantaneously you're almost responsible for that response, where at your own time, you're able to kind of step back, get a little bit more deep thought into it. So, so I love that approach there. Fully distributed team, I'm wondering how much thought went into the structure of levels at the, the very, very beginning of the company? Good question. <laughs> um, surprisingly little. It, it was an easy decision because both Sam and I, so uh, I originally formed the company with my co-founder, Sam, and we wanted to bring on more co-founders. We wanted to get like deep skill sets across all of the like key product verticals or, or company verticals, really. Um, and so, but but initially we formed the company and, and we made that decision day one. It was just we didn't live in the same area. He was in New York, but I think he was heading back to San Francisco soon. I was in Philadelphia. I had to be there for some amount of time. Knew I didn't want to stay there long term. And we we both kind of wanted to hit this project immediately, but couldn't easily put together a solution for where we, we should do it. And, and it just, it felt like this project in particular lent, lent itself very well to a distributed format. And so even before it was cool, and, and frankly, when it was a risk, uh, you know, two years ago or a year and a half ago, we just said, we're going to do this. Like everything about a company is an experiment. And both of us feel really good about doing this remote. Sam has been kind of a nomadic entrepreneur for a long time. He's He has done some co-located office situations, but he's been traveling and doing, um, you know, very effective work for, for close to a decade. And so, he certainly felt super great and was able to convince me that this would work. And, and again, coming from a hardware background, um, I wanted that remote work because I felt like it would really contribute to a balanced lifestyle, but I wanted to be sure it was going to be successful and, and uh, developing hardware. You know, it, it's a very different problem set. You do need to be co-located to some extent typically. And so I was, I was like kind of on the fence and Sam's assurance was really powerful. And so we were just like, let's do it and, and leaned in. And, and frankly, it saved us when COVID came around. We were, we just continued, you know, we, there was no, and we're lucky, but there was just no disruption to the way we did business. And, and we already had a structure in place that we could lean into. And, um, and I think we, if anything, accelerated through the time. You've mentioned Sam a few times, also having multiple co-founders besides just having deep expertise in certain domains. What else did you see in Sam and then the other co-founders that just, you felt really good about having them on the team? So the, the beauty of the founding team we've got is that we're all about one degree of separation apart um, from the beginning. So Sam and I, David and I, uh, who, who runs product, we we had known each other for a few years. I had known Sam a little bit longer. Um, and I just knew the way he approached problems. He, he's a very uh, transparent person. He, he speaks his mind. He's a, a super, like one of the strongest networkers ever. He's got a great podcast that talks about his, uh, his approach to networking. But I, I just felt highly confident in his ability to build relationships, his pre-existing relationships. And then his expertise was very specific. So, you know, he has uh, deep software development experience and entrepreneurship. So, you know, just all of those together and my awareness that we shared principles. So the way, the way we thought about the world was, was similar enough that I, I didn't think we were going to have, you know, big trouble just even, you know, at the highest levels of the company, what should we do and why, you know, we, we could agree. So um, that was the, the big thing for me was, was uh, just, Sam as a person was a good fit. And then he has this excellent sort of bias towards execution, you know, and I always thought I was an execution oriented person. I, I certainly am. And I tend to bias towards doing things faster than, than slower, but Sam takes that to another level. And so that was another thing, which I, I always value 
speed over over perfection. Um, and, and I think we share that across the founding team. And so Sam, you know, had close connections again to David, who, who I also knew. Um, David's worked at Google on compliance and payments and had just deep expertise and and product that we could lean into and and also just a, a great person action oriented and he you know he worked with Andrew at Google and Andrew was uh, he led engineering for what ultimately became Google Voice just really spectacular engineer and another deep thinker um, and and then Casey who was you know we all I guess David knew her brother and as soon as David brought up the concept of levels her brother said this is my sister's thing you know and she's a Stanford trained surgeon uh, turned functional medicine doctor. And so we needed the expertise in the medical space. You know, we needed someone who could bring a very um, high level understanding of the biochemistry and the human physiology to, to drive our clinical strategy and our content strategy. And the first conversation with Casey, you know, I, she, she's the one I've known for the shortest amount of time, but the, the synergy between our ways of thinking and the ways we, we, per, we perceive the solution to metabolic the metabolic crisis were essentially identical. And, you know, we just, she was coming from a totally different background from us. And the, and the fact that we could both arrive at the same conclusion and just met each other at the same time frame, it felt serendipitous. And then, you know, I have continuously uh, just redoubled my, my faith and, and happiness in, in Casey. Like she's such a great person and has done such a phenomenal job accelerating our progress. So, you know, it was, it was frankly just looking for shared principles and shared ways of, uh, thinking about the world. And then that was the, I think the context within which every one of these, these co-founding uh, decisions was made. It was just like this person uh, is, I think uh, approaches, approaches problem solving and team building in a similar way and also believes in what we're doing uh, in a, at a very deep level. Um, so. It's amazing how many founding teams often don't have shared principles. It's almost like that's the first order problem that, that needs to be solved. If you're not aligned there, it's going to be different. Uh, it, it's very cool, though, hearing about the relationship with Casey and that your conviction level essentially has gone up over time. Uh, it, anytime there's a, a relationship like that, uh, it's just really special. It's a great bond. I love you bringing up bias towards action. This literally was the, the focus. We do a, a Monday team call as well, talking about just having a bias towards action. So I love that. Talking about the, the principles and even understanding you guys are starting from the same place, and this, this could go nowhere. I'm wondering, though, how much self-work did you do to understand what your principles were, how you view the world, how you operate, your values, all of those things? Mm. Well, I, I think that the biggest thing that, that Sam and I agreed on is that we needed to be a transparent, high-integrity organization that um, – did not subscribe to a specific dogma. So what we were looking for in all of the founding team was just openness and willingness to change perspective based on better information. Uh, and, and much of that is just due to, I think that has like a team dynamic component. You want to make sure that you're you're working with someone who is, um, you know, driving from a position of, of just evidence-based decision-making. You know, you, you don't want to get stuck in a situation where you have an emotional disagreement um, that that ends up defining your experience together. It should always be, I think, you should be able to return to rational arguments, and and so that that was key for us. And it's very hard to define, of course, but um, but then secondarily, when it comes to the nature of the product, 
we're challenging a lot of preconceptions about um, what it means to to take control of your health and and why you should do this and when you should do this. And uh, in challenging, you know, frankly, some some large entrenched interests in the food industry and, and and some pharmaceutical interests and such. And so it's really important that people be willing both to to take a potentially uh, non mainstream approach, but then also if we find that the direction we're heading in is is not doing the degree of of good that we thought it would, we have to be willing to adjust course. And we don't want to get stuck in a situation where, you know, revenue is the bottom line. And so having people who are, I think, have high integrity at their base gives us higher confidence that 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 course correction could be made if it needed to be made. Um, and, if, you know, as we get further and further along, we're more and more convicted in, in what we're doing. And I think feeling very good that we're heading in the right direction. But those are kind of the, the principles we're looking for, is just open, transparent communication and willingness to um, not necessarily take a, if you do have strong convictions that you at least ground them in some evidence, you know, that you, that you feel that this is important to, to, uh, um, to any argument that evidence is important to any argument. Yeah, the, the model I use for this is strong opinions weekly held. So I, I put in a ton of work in, in terms of understanding all of that, but once new information comes in, like you said, you've got to be willing to switch sides there. I would love, just because you're talking about paradigm shifts and kind of going against the grain here, could you even give a, a deeper level into what Levels does so we have a, a clearer picture? Then we can even dive into, into some of these things. I, I'm just loving uh, the conversation here and, and what you're hitting on about how you guys operate the business. Absolutely. Yeah, Levels answers the question, what should I eat and why? And uh, we do that with real-time data coming from the individual's body in a closed loop fashion. So basically you, you wear a little sensor on your arm, which is measuring molecules in your body and you make decisions, you eat food, you uh, go for exercise, you sleep, you, you have stress from your normal day. All of these things affect the way your body's functioning and you get real time or near real time feedback on how good or bad the decisions you're making are and, and the way that you are responding to them. And then we surface insights to help you improve those. So this is uh, what we call bio-wearable. It's something that is measuring a molecule in the body as opposed to a superficial marker like pulse or step count. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of background here. So uh, nutrition is notoriously complicated. There are, there are sort of factions that, that have very extreme perspectives and, and you have like vegan and you have keto and you have carnivore and everyone is very uh, almost tribal in the way they approach it. And I don't want to speak ill of any of those approaches or philosophies, but, you know, it tends to be everyone has to do this or they're doing it wrong. And the reality is we have a, a growing body of research that shows that humans are extremely diverse in the way that their bodies function, their metabolic systems, which is the system which produces energy from our food and environment, uh, is very unique. And so Levels is building that uniqueness into the core product. So we take into account how the specific actions this person is making affect their specific body and what they should do to improve. And it's not about the average. It's not about saying, you you know, you, the average is doing this and you're doing that. You should do more like the average. It's it's saying this specific thing that you did yesterday and the day before and the day before that is continually, continually pushing against your stated goal of, say, losing weight. And this other thing could, could improve that. And, and that might be something very simple, like substituting a meal that you're eating. So uh, an, an example would be something like 70% of people who eat oatmeal while using the Levels product find out that their blood sugar elevates to a very abnormal state and then comes crashing back down, causing a whole hormonal implication that is like contributing to weight gain and could potentially be inflammatory to the, to the heart. And so 
um, we can recommend an alternative, you know, maybe avocado toast or something like that, that has a more balanced profile, more healthy fat, potentially some more protein that could be an alternative. And, and people are finding these very like minimal micro optimizations throughout their lives to improve the way their metabolic system is functioning. And the reason we believe this is necessary is that, um, 88% of American adults currently in the United States uh, are metabolically unhealthy. And the CDC states that uh, about 84 million people in the United States have prediabetes. 90% of them don't know they have it. And 70% of that group will become type two diabetic in the next 10 years if they don't do something about it. So levels is identifying this space where we have a dramatic worsening problem we have no information. So basically we, we wait decades until we get a diagnosis of illness or at, at best we, we wait months until our bodies, you know, until our, our bathroom scales start to increase uh, before we take any action. And we, it's non-specific action. You have no feedback to tell you when you sit down for lunch and you choose something to eat, did that work? And if so, why? Um, and so we're trying to fill that gap with, with real objective data. I love it. Just taking on such a a massive, important problem with just tremendous impact here. I'm going to dive more into how this even came to be, but I would love to know for you, what's been the most surprising feedback you received from the device? Well, it it, it certainly has, I consider myself to be basically patient zero for this, (laughs) this application. Um, I discovered despite being uh, a CrossFit trainer and and caring deeply about physical fitness as a way to maintain long-term health, I discovered essentially by accident that I had uh, either borderline pre-diabetic and or fully pre-diabetic glucose levels. Um, and so I, it was very erratic metabolic function. And this was in an effort to try to track down some s- severe fatigue I was experiencing. I was getting a lot of mental and physical burnout. My mood was really bad. It was at a point in time when my career demanded very high performance and I wasn't able to deliver, I felt. Um, and, and so I essentially using the the real-time feedback from continuous glucose monitoring, so measuring the sugar levels in my blood real-time, full-time, I was able to identify not just nutrition factors that I thought were healthy, that I was eating every day and relying on as staples were causing really bad responses in my body, but also the effect of stress and sleep. And so I think the most surprising thing to me was how uh, significant the implications of chronic stress are for, for health and wellness. You know, I, I would say that nutrition didn't really surprise me. I knew that I was confused. I knew I didn't have it all figured out in terms of nutrition. So finding out that some things I was eating were not right, that, that made sense. But the stress element and the way that I could see uh, really the difference between a day when I was well-rested and my mind was at ease versus a day where I was uh, poorly slept and I was on high alert uh, I could see that in the blood sugar levels circulating through my body. And those are affected by cortisol. So cortisol directly interferes with your blood sugar levels. Um, and, and so that really drove home for me the importance of uh, just intentionality and mindfulness in your day-to-day, just trying to maintain you know, a, a position of calm and confidence, and then also the value of a good sleep regime and, and sleep hygiene. Is there anything you do today when you feel you're starting to redline and just getting a bit stressed, just even in the moment, say you've got a really busy day still ahead of you and that stress is starting to peak anything you do then? Yeah. So, um, for the, for the more benign moments, you know, when we're just feeling like a little bit heightened, we're feeling a little bit like things are, uh, out of our hands. I'll just do some, some eyes closed breathing and, and just kind of, and this is something I never did. It's very simple. It takes two to three minutes at, at, at least. Uh, but just closing my eyes and just taking some deep breaths and exhaling and just kind of focusing on the breathing 
and trying to like clear the mind. It's a, it's not quite a mindfulness practice. I'm still I'm still trying to improve my consistency with with a focused meditation practice. But just that bit of breathing and and taking kind of control over my physiology really helps to center because this these are background processes and they can just run haywire when we're continuously kicking ourselves with more and more stressful stuff and jumping from one thing to the next. So I think just that similar to, you know, taking an hour out to go for a run, you're intentionally taking control of your physiology and putting your body in a specific state. I think breathing is just for a few minutes can, can kind of replicate some of those. And I, I see a, a big benefit for my, my mental, uh, you know, well-being, but then also um, I, I do feel that it has a physiologic effect on my glucose levels. It's, it's a minor one, but that's just one thing. If things are getting really out of control, you know, I'm continuously like for multiple weeks, I'm poorly slept and things are feeling, feeling rough. You know, I, I tend to just take time to go for long walks, um, typically at night, because I, I really find like a lot of peace from uh, stars and just like, you know, space and that, that dark surrounding. And I'm able to just focus. There's not as much stimuli. And I like to just ask, you know, is what, is what I am stressed about going to matter in five years? You know, if I can just ask myself that one question, invariably the answer is no. Like every once in a while, obviously there's something that's going to have a big implication for your life. And that's a good way to sort of examine it. But certainly for the majority of us, like if we just ask those, that question about the day-to-day stress we're experiencing, most of the time it's going to be like, no, I'm not even going to remember this moment. And, and that is a really nice, you know, reference frame. You can, you can recognize that probably in two weeks, this moment will have passed and it won't have a long-term effect on my life. And, and that's just a good way to kind of return to the, to earth. <laughs> it, it's certainly helpful to have some of those simple questions that really do just, just reset everything and, and let you see things through a different perspective. You mentioned the breath work. Uh, that, that's something uh, I subscribe to as well. Uh, I think that's just been so impactful. Another thing, uh, if you're in the meeting, say things are getting heightened stress, one thing you can do, and I know Dr. Uh, Andrew Huberman uh, out at Stanford has done some work on this. It's around the soft gaze. So you can be looking directly at someone and just kind of look off into the distance slightly. And that kind of drops you a little bit as well. Uh, those are things that have been really helpful. I would, I would love to know even the origin story with levels though. How, how did this idea even come to be? And then it's first idea, but then what you're talking bias towards action, very few people take the idea and say, you know what, I'm going to start a company with this. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I was, I was in this point or at this point in my life where physical fitness alone, like hitting the gym alone, wasn't, I, I looked healthy. You know, I can just say that frankly, like I looked healthy. I felt like I should feel healthy but I did not feel healthy. So every day, you know, I, I was feeling these waves of fatigue that would overcome me. I would get these yawning attacks and I would, I would literally, I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. It looked like I would just, I was out partying all night in reality. You know, I went to bed early. I like, I, I, I was eating as well as I could. I was exercising every morning. I was doing the things that I thought create health. And I just felt like I had a terminal illness. Um, and, and so I, got to this point where I just wanted, like, I, I read a, a research paper in the course of my work. I was working at SpaceX at, at the time. And I, I read a paper that described the effect that diet can have on human physiology. It was about ketosis and, and how it can have a protective effect for seizures. And anyway, that, that just like really surprised me because I had never really examined nutrition beyond just saying like, okay, let's eat good foods. You know, good is kind of an ill-defined category, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, you know, I certainly wasn't eating fast food. But I did have a bit of a sugar addiction. I, I like I liked candy. I liked desserts a lot, you know. And I would I felt I'm not gaining weight. I can indulge. And um, anyway, I, I started to think like maybe there's something to this. Maybe I I need to take a more intentional approach to my nutrition, um, and, and in order to really improve health because this whole fitness thing is just it's not hacking it alone. 
Um, anyway, I, I started to read more about metabolism and the way that our energy is produced because I was having this energy crisis and discovered uh, through, and of course, time is going by here. This is like a, a nights and weekends type, just reading up type thing. And I had left SpaceX by this, by this time. I was working at Hyperloop. Um, and I read a book called Wired to Eat by Rob Wolf. And, and his book, it came out in 2017. And he, he just describes like defining a diet based on how your blood sugar responds to those foods. And his argument is that blood sugar uh, directly affects hormones and those hormones affect our experience. And they also affect our likelihood of long-term risk uh, of illness. So, um, <clears throat> so I read this book, it made a ton of sense. In the back, he talks about this new technology called a continuous glucose monitor. And I had been pricking my finger repeatedly to measure my blood sugar levels. Since I, I knew a bit about metabolism now, I knew that glucose is our primary, primary source of energy for the modern human. I wanted to just see if I could find any patterns. And so I was pricking my finger a bunch of times to get single point measurements. This book told me there's a new device that was developed for diabetes and it measures your glucose continuously and streams it to your device. Um, that felt like an ideal solution for me. I went to my doctor, I asked for a prescription and uh, he basically looked at me cross-eyed and said, that, that's for people who have an advanced condition. You do not have that condition. You don't need to worry about this. Like, it's just not for you. And nor is it something that is even interesting for someone like you to measure. Um, and that, <laughs> that like, that was the moment of enhanced conviction. Yeah. So it was like, I left that, <laughs> that office visit. And I was like, first of all, the, this is happening in my body, whether or not I'm measuring it. Right. So it's like, it's harmless to measure it. And secondly, why is there a, kind of gatekeeper to me understanding my own body's information. That, that kind of felt like a violation to me. Yeah. It, it was, I, I feel very comfortable working with an expert and, and I understand I don't know everything, but it seemed as though I should be granting access to my body's information as opposed to being having to ask for access to my body's information. Like this device is just simply going to give me levels of glucose that are already in my blood. So that combined with my systems engineering background and knowing that systems don't break down, typically they don't break down instantaneously. You don't suddenly become diabetic. Uh, over time, through wear and tear and the continual inputs that we're providing, you eventually break a system down. That's how it works. And, and typically what you're measuring determines what you can manage. And so if the goal is to not have a blood sugar dysfunction where your, your glucose is out of control, well, you should probably start managing it a lot earlier than you know once it's broken. So all that came together into an idea. And uh, eventually I did get a CGM. I discovered, um, sorry, th that happened before the idea. I got the CGM. I discovered that my blood sugar was very erratic. It, it was not controlled. It was directly correlated with uh, my, my feelings of extreme ener energy loss, my mental like cloudiness, my mood issues were all kind of in the 2 p.m. time frame. And I had lunch at noon, had this big blood sugar elevation and then a big crash. And those crashes were right with that, you know, that sort of malaise experience. Um, and I started to just iterate towards better glucose. I changed my nutrition. I changed my sleep habits. I tried some breathing exercises. And uh, over time, I just recognized that this information is crucial. It's actionable. Like you can change it with better choices. And there's a, there's a blockade. Like there, we need enhanced access to this technology, but we also need to then take it and create actionability. Like there has to be an added layer of insights because not everyone is going to read through all the literature on glucose and figure out what is causing which elevations and uh, what their target should be. And there's this opportunity to produce a really amazing new behavior change system that is taking real-time biological data and transforming it into simple insights that you can implement in your life. Um, and so that's, that's the goal for levels. 
all of that exploration, doing the work on yourself, how long did that take? And then what, what was the point where you said, you know what, let's, let's start a company here? It was, um, you know, from the time that I read the paper that got me thinking about nutrition and I started to, to dig in on metabolism physiology and then start experimenting, it, it was well over a year. Um, it, it was really, uh, I left SpaceX in 2016. I was experimenting pricking my finger in 2017. I read the Rob Wolf Wired to Eat book in 2017. And then by 2018, um, it had congealed or by, by early 2018, it had congealed into like, this is what I want to do. And I was, I was putting pen to paper on a business plan, but it was a long process. And by no means, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I will say there was one moment when I was coming out of the shower and I was just like, it finally clicked. Like there is that, you know, there's this sensor system that's already been developed. It's, it's kind of out there, but it's for people who have an illness and um, it's not very consumerized and, and just recognition that the area of opportunity is actually not the hardware. I was thinking like, I should probably build a CGM for people who don't, don't yet have diabetes and I'll do the hardware process. And uh, that felt very expensive. It felt onerous. The FDA has to approve it. It's a very long process. Then the recognition was just that that's not the area of opportunity. The area of opportunity is in that whole process of learning that I had gone through for two years. That took me a long time. I've read hundreds of papers uh, on PubMed about the human body and how glucose works and how it should work for me. And so focusing on the, the chasm between raw data coming out of a, a blood sugar monitor and ultimately behavior change is where we should focus. It's, it's the insights framework that, that lies atop the hardware and tells you this is what this means and this is what you should do instead. And, and so that was like kind of a, a, a uh, light bulb moment where it's like, okay, got it. We don't have to go reinvent the wheel and build this hardware from scratch. Like we can, we can instead do what say whoop and aura do for optical heart rate sensing. You know, they take this sensor that's been around for a long time and they turn it into a behavior change experience by focusing on your sleep and how heart rate connects to sleep or heart rate variability connects to sleep or your exercise performance. And, uh, and so, yeah, that that's ultimately like the moment that it all came together. The, those insights, the, the flash of insights, the aha moments, you, you have all that incubation period, the multi years, and then all of a sudden it's just kind of that, that subconscious going to work while you're in the shower there. Josh, you, you come off to me as someone who is just voraciously curious and always learning. Uh, am I wrong here? Or is this how you are just talking about reading hundreds of paper, uh, kind of nights and weekends? Have you always been like this? Um, I think I have. So I, I'm putting myself in context with other people I know who are like even more voracious for everything. And I think I, I don't have, I, I really love learning and I love, but I love specific things that I, I think, you know, I, I love spacecraft and vehicles and machines. And I, I dig very deeply into those and I've dedicated a lot of my life to, to building them and designing them. And I, I really am passionate about them. Um, you know, so it has to, something has to have like a personal appeal to me and this whole process of like self-exploration, I, I'd never had a deep interest in human physiology or, or medicine. And I think that's the, that's the uniqueness maybe about the way I approach things is that, and maybe there's a selfishness component here, but if, if I have a, a connection to it, it makes it that much more meaningful. And I think it gives me a framework to understand the information. You know, I, I don't do very well just bringing in a lot of abstract information um, sort of without context. And, and so, yeah, I, I definitely love solving problems. And, and certainly I feel a huge satisfaction when a problem can be solved in an elegant way. Um, and, and I think that's what it comes down to is just, I, I do enjoy, enjoy that challenge. And um, I think generally any information I can consume about that, that will make that more, more, 
more possible is something I go after, but I, I don't consider myself to be like one of the most uh, voracious consumers of information. You know, um, unfortunately, I just, I, I have to stay focused. <laughs> you, you mentioned the, the systems engineering background and then talking about building up the, those frameworks. How can someone who is trying to even develop those frameworks, how can they work on that and just kind of add a better baseline? I think there's no replacement for seeing it in action. So um, being around people who have developed those frameworks already does a lot of the work for you. You know, you can you can read books, and I certainly consider books to be an exceptional source of information for for finding an edge and making better you know decisions or, or developing mental models. But there's really no replacement for seeing it again in action, demonstrated. And um, you know, I, I certainly have benefited from working at places like SpaceX where the the average the median was way above me you know everyone around me was just so much better at what they were doing and so once you get comfortable with that with your position in an environment like that you recognize the opportunity it's like this is a huge huge benefit and i need to just be a sponge um so that's kind of where where i think i first started to develop um well i i just definitely was able to hone a lot of my um, approaches to problem solving and just recognize the value of first principles and simplicity and approaching problems from, uh, you know, a position of team as opposed to solo solutions. So just relying on those with better expertise. There's no ego in, in those environments. And I'm not, you know, certainly not saying that no one at SpaceX has ego, but it, it, it the environment lends itself very well to just leaning on the people with most expertise. And, and the, the beauty of that is that you get to go and spend time while you're trying to solve one problem, all the sub problems, you're spending time with people who can, who can help you with those and you're seeing their mind at work and you're seeing the way that they, you know, tackle that specific solution. And you can then incorporate that into your approach. And so I, I just think like for people that want to improve this, improve on this, and, and it's a constant lifelong process work with great people, you know, just like try to try to not only work with them, but try to have them work alongside you or show you how they work. You know, I think that's the best, the best process. As someone who struggled with this early and kind of would want to go at it alone, once you suspend that eagle and you, you understand that bringing other people on, especially people who are way smarter than you, uh, that skill development, how fast uh, you can excel and learn uh, is pretty remarkable. Do you have any specific examples? I would love if you could even dive in, whether it's at um, Hyperloop or even SpaceX, just uh, something that maybe you didn't do going into it, but afterwards it just left a profound impact and it's a way of thinking that that you guys incorporate at levels. Well, I, I think that first principles and the the most elegant solution is the simplest. So kind of an Occam's razor approach to solving problems is something I hadn't really internalized until my time in SpaceX. So the first principles are essentially the, like the core fundamental pro like components of any problem. And, you know, a car, for example, is a very complicated machine with a lot of extraneous details, but ultimately it's trying to move people from point A to point B. And so the first principle solution is moving people or the first principles uh, are of the problem are moving people from point A to point B against the, the physical constraints of gravity and wind resistance, et cetera. Anytime that you're talking about a problem outside of that air conditioning and, you know, lug nuts and such, you're talking about an abstract extraneous detail to the core first principle. So if, if you're trying to solve a problem, start there. Do not start with what's been done before. Don't start with, you know, building on the expertise of, or the experiences of others. Definitely take that into account. But the, the, the 
core of the concept or the core of the solution conversation should be around what are we ultimately trying to solve? And you should try to do it with the least, I think, number of, in hardware, you used to call them mechanical miracles. But like every time that you have to solve another problem, you're adding to the complexity of the end solution. And so like just seeing that, you know, at SpaceX, we uh, we did not value complexity or reward complexity or, or reward like the most abstract, theoretically interesting breakthrough. It was uh, the simplest solution always was was most I think celebrated. And that was a beautiful thing because in my, you know, it's very easy when you're going through school and you don't really have context for the way the industry works to, to start thinking that complexity is really amazing. And like if someone is able to pull off, you know, the most complex solution in history, it's like this incredible breakthrough and it's a demonstration of their expertise. And I now look at it the opposite. You know, it's, <laughs> if, if something can be done with, you know, one tenth of the number of, of parts, components, processes, uh, it is the far more beautiful solution. And I just revel in that. And I always pursue it in my own approaches. And, and so I think in, in pursuit of that, we at, at levels really push our first principles mindset. And, you know, just, I, I think the simplicity of what we were proposing, which is that rather than trying to develop a one size fits all lifestyle approach that, you know, we pass through legislation or we get, you know, somehow distributed across the entire globe as a, a you know, a rigid follow this format and achieve physical health, uh, which seems nearly impossible to get, to even get uh, any, any sor- sort of, a, you know, unanimous approval for, but also doesn't seem well suited to the diversity of the human population. Instead, we're breaking it down into the simplest uh, actor, and that's the individual. It's like if each individual is making better choices, you do that times many, many individuals, and you have social scale change. And it's, it's actually possible and easy to do this with real-time feedback. Um, you can connect the dots between an action I took, the reaction my body experienced. I'm just focusing on me. I'm not focusing on the rest of the world. And so I think that's kind of a first principles elegant solution. I, I really like that. And then one other thing that we had at, at SpaceX that Elon from the very earliest moments drilled home was just in pursuit of the elimination of kind of an expertise culture, a complexity culture. There was no acronyms and industry jargon was essentially illegal. <laughs> you, you can't, you're not allowed to speak in terms or everyone is like encouraged to speak in the simplest terms possible. And so, you know, if you're not using a bunch of acronyms that someone has to leave the meeting and look up, it allows for everyone in the, in the conversation, no matter who they are, or what their background might be to be involved and to be considering the problem uh, as you're describing it and potentially contribute to it. So we do the same thing at levels as we, we just, despite the fact that we're working with some complex human physiology stuff, the mechanics of it can be described very simply and should be. And so we, we definitely push that same mentality of just keeping the conversation open, transparent, simple in order to encourage the uh, simplistic solutions and contributions that anyone may be able to make. Yeah, there, there's just such beauty in the simple, simple, elegant solutions. So, so I love that. I'm wondering, is there anything you saw in, in your past roles, past experiences that you were like, without a doubt, I don't want this to be part of levels? Well, there are a few things in terms of like the way the organization should operate. I, I've had experiences where organizations are, I think, incentives, incentive misaligned, where it's all about vanity metrics and things like team growth and having targets on headcount growth and having targets for money raised and, and such. And 
much of this I think is secondary to the primary purpose that everyone is there for. Making sure that the organization is aligned on and, and staying just deadly focused on the goal, the primary goal, why are we doing what we're doing is key. And it has to proliferate through all of the business kind of metrics. Anything you're tracking has to be driven by your, your core focus. I, you know, Elon's companies do this really well. Again, just to bring it back to that, but the goal of SpaceX is to make humans multiplanetary. And there, there is no business function happening, or at least when I left, there wasn't. It was not primarily focused on making that happen. There is no target. There is no objective for ad count. Um, it is just, is this decision going to push us closer to that ultimate goal? And I think it's, it's just, yeah, again, I, I've had experiences at, I follow on projects that were not the same and it's key at levels that we keep our eyes on the prize. You know, the goal is to reverse the trends of metabolic dysfunction and, uh, that doesn't imply that we need to have some arbitrary growth goal. It doesn't imply that we need to have some arbitrary team size. Uh, the reality is just efficiency in our execution. And if we can do something to improve that, to get towards that end goal, great. But otherwise, we, we don't, we don't want to compete in a game we're not playing. I'm wondering how you approach this because um, I think it was back in November. Uh, you guys raised $12 million on your seed round. Congratulations on that uh, from Andreessen in Horowitz, Mark Randolph, um, some other well-known investors. So I'm wondering, you even talked about earlier about you guys were fully distributed and certain people prior to COVID would have said that could be a risk. I'm wondering then how you think about that. We're not going after some of these vanity metrics. And I would love to just know how your investors either instill confidence that what you're doing is the correct way and to not get, you know, drawn into some of those vanity metrics that so many startups do. Yeah, we are still actively kind of suppressing our growth. We're, we're in development mode. We, we want to get to a certain degree of uh, net, you know, net promoter score, which is something we care a lot about, which is the the quality, I think, of the of the person's experience, which dictates whether they would share it with someone else. So we're focusing very much on customer feedback, on the quality of their experience, and on the behavior change that we we think is ultimately necessary in order to improve metabolic health. So we are we're still in an invitation only mode. We we haven't actively grown, even though we we easily could have, you know, just cut the rope and said, we're growing now. We're going to try and like ramp up revenue and, and shock the investors with our, with our approach. Instead, we focused on tactics, strategy, and continuous updates and just making communication available. So throughout the fundraise process, which by the way, was happening during the, the deepest parts of COVID when all the uncertainty was at its, Good at its peak. There. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just, you know, couldn't, couldn't have asked for worse timing, I think. But, um, you know, we, we just continued to keep updates going, a, a steady cadence of transparency about what we were doing and what we were focusing on. And I believe that the memo culture and the way we were describing our strategy and the way that we were really backing up every choice we made was what came across to, to the investors, specifically A16. You know, they they were really impressed by the amount of documentation we we brought throughout the process. And beyond that, they became very familiar over those those months with why we were doing what we were doing. It wasn't a single pitch meeting that defined the conversation. It was um, essentially we were doing the due diligence process for them on not only our specific product and team, but the entire marketplace, why we believe this will exist in a meaningful way, even though it doesn't today. Um, and, and so, yeah, just maintaining that, that cadence of openness and being willing to share the information um, showed, I think, 
not just progress and, and how fast the, the product was iterating and how we are an, an execution-oriented team, but it also gave, I think, the, you know, the investors confidence that, um, <laughs> and it was a prolonged process, but they, they became, it became obvious that A, the entire marketplace was, or the entire industry, really uh, tech industry was embracing remote work. And so that certainly didn't harm us <laughs> in the sense that it, like reframe the whole conversation about remote, but that our team specifically was executing effectively in a remote environment. So it, what may have started out as a demerit point, I think ultimately became a benefit because they could see that we could tap into uh, talent all over the world and, uh, and, and we could execute with it. Josh, this is awesome. I feel like most times you hear about uh, a company raises a bunch of money. Obviously, the, the product's got to be good. The idea's got to be good. But some of those small things in, in terms of going so deep in terms of how you guys approach problems and that they found value in that, uh, th th that's really cool to hear about. I'm wondering, did, did any of the investors, I'm, I'm assuming they've given plenty of advice, is, is there some advice uh, that just stood out or you think really has kind of changed the trajectory or even approach for levels? Well, we, we have a very... Uh, strong roster of not just you know institutional investors but also angels and they've been critical to our progress so far just really having convicted supporters in the form of of angel investors has been one of the biggest benefits i think throughout this process and and now with Andreessen on board they're just picking up the pace right alongside and so like we have very much leaned into our investors as a network of experts and as a source of potential introductions to additional experts. And we really value collecting information to check our own approach um, and improve our, uh, you know, just improve our cadence and or access to better information. Uh, a specific example, let me think about this one. I, I think that we take a pretty non-standard approach to many things. Like our, our product is not by default a subscription right now, which uh, initially was confusing to many, to many people because there is opportunity for a subscription and a recurring revenue model. And we're transitioning towards that. But we, you know, from the beginning, we're hyper-focused on moving large or like larger numbers of unique perspectives through the program one time so that we could get their experience and get in, clock their feedback and make improvements. And rather than having one person who sort of gets familiarized with the, the product offering, and then maybe their quality of feedback or cadence of feedback drops off, we instead were focusing on getting more unique perspectives through so that we could make sure we're getting fresh eyes on it at, at all times. And, um, and, you know, that came from, from some early conversations with some of our like very earliest investors. And frankly, like the first customers that we had, even before we had a product ultimately became investors and they were, critical to like going through this conceptual paid process. We charged them as though we had a product and essentially replicated it with text messaging. And, you know, even though we didn't even have an app, we just took their glucose information and, and chatted back and forth about it. And, and so these were early investors who were telling us, this is what the product should look like, what it should do for me, for me to be happy. So I, you know, I know that's not specific, but just like incorporating them into the very earliest moments of the product itself I think is why we are where we are. And then having their, like their conviction because they, they used it, they could see the vision and they then felt like this has to exist. I now understand what this team is trying to do and I can support them even more effectively. That certainly is helpful, Josh. I I'm wondering because you're talking about getting multiple perspectives from, from users, investors, and then everyone on the team. And I, I know you guys have the memo culture. I'm wondering how leadership 
is able to zoom in on the details, but then also zoom out, understand long-term um, and overarching systems within all of this, just to make sure the, the details you're going after are the right ones. Much of it has to come down to trust. So on, on the team, there are, we each have different responsibilities. And frankly, I'm the one who, who kind of plays the flex role. I, I don't have a software engineering background and much of what we're doing is software and data science and, and sort of consumer product development. So uh, each of us has to kind of fit in where we, where we should. And, um, you know, that means ultimately splitting up responsibility sets. And, and like, you know, Andrew, for example, with the engineering team, he's building a phenomenal engineering team, world-class, and they're just executing on the product goals and pushing us further and further towards holistic system level scalability. Meanwhile, you know, others on the team have to continue keeping the hiring pipeline open. And so my, myself, I focus on, on hiring and hitting our, you know, wherever our current resource constraints are, making sure that we're allocating resources to alleviating those resource constraints and not growing too fast, but making sure that we're maintaining a pace that allows someone to come in, absorb the, the values of the organization and hit the ground running. And, you know, Sam is at the same time making kind of large scale business development decisions and, and keeping our meetings going with potential partners and investors and, and our network and such. And, you know, it could very, very easily be a situation where all of us as co-founders want to sign off on each decision, right? And make sure that we're all up to speed at all times. But really, there's a prevailing sense of trust among us that each of us has to like, we, we are doing this together for a reason. We, we trust each other. We believe in each of our ability to make good decisions. And so um, it's, it's very nice in the sense that we can just allow some of us to focus on the bigger picture, some of us to focus on the iterations that are have to happen, ha- having to happen each day. And then we just stay synced up on those in a, in a kind of a memo for, format. And uh, because our team is fairly large, our founding team, we do have the resources to kind of allocate to both the big and smaller chunks. Trust certainly speeds things up. Uh, I'm wondering, I would love to dive into to hiring, to culture, how you guys get people based on the values. Uh, I know this is something you've put a tremendous amount of thought into um, and then also execution. So how do you approach that? When you guys are looking to bring someone new on, uh, where are you even starting there to make sure that they're aligned with your values and they'll be a good fit for you? One place to start, and, and I mentioned our our angel investing, uh, you know, kind of, cohort that we've got, we've got a lot of strong strategic folks and, and they're very, many of them are experts in, uh, in this, the fields and industries that we're, we're building inside of. So that's where we start. Uh, typically when, especially if we're looking for a leadership role, uh, we will make an ask directly to our investor group and, and just say, this is what we're looking for. Here's a, a, you know, we will always write a detailed requirements uh, page. So we use Notion for this, but we'll, we'll write a job description and, and really dig deep on what we're looking for. And then we'll just say, can you introduce us to the two best people that you know in, in this specific space? And many of our investors, you know, again, they, they may not have direct experience, but they will know someone who does. And they'll say, look, I'm not a designer, a UX designer, but the best UX designer I've ever worked with is this person. They're not looking for a position, but they can certainly recommend two of theirs. So we like open our network uh, wide open and, and just get, even if these people, again, aren't looking for a job, we'll just start to foster conversation. And we're now, we know with confidence that we're talking to a pre-filtered cohort. And we will put a, a job or a type form up for people to uh, apply, you know, inbound interest to apply for the position, which we will also filter. 
but again, it's it, like we we definitely start from a position of our network, which which allows us to conserve resources and focus where the recommendation is highest, where someone has pre-existing experience with them. And our approach is very much information overload. You know, we will share a huge number of documents, and we down select for people who not only put in the time to uh, consume that information, but then can reflect it back to us with good kind of questions. You know, it's like we would expect that we're not doing everything right. And so if somebody's looking through our, our memos that we've produced throughout, they're going to identify that and say like, huh, there are all these areas that don't make sense. And we expect that. We want to see that in this person. It's like they should be challenging us. And, and that's how we kind of iterate towards the the like final candidacy and and I think really seeing inside the organization has been such a benefit. You know, these people are 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 seeing probably more information than they've ever seen about a company before starting, and that really sets the the foundation. They they they're con- I think intrigued by it, and ultimately we've had a few people who who weren't working or, or sorry weren't weren't looking at the time who ultimately decided to come and join us. Just I think because of that approach to just transparent starting off from a a very open position and letting them uh, get a feel for the problem we're solving and, and the team. The two things I love there, and I, I hope every business, if they're not doing it, starts doing it, and that's building up that talent pipeline. Uh, you never know when someone's going to start looking for that job um, or, or who they can connect you with. So I, I love that element. Uh, but then also being more open up front. I mean, too many people because they're not upfront. They, they take this job, this career, and all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, I had no idea this is what it was going to be like. If I was talking to, to call it someone who's been recently hired within the last six months, what, what do you think they would say it's, it's like working at levels? Well, I, I think <laughs> that's a good question. I hope that they would say that it, it, is, uh, it is like working, it is like being given the, the best job you've you've ever wanted, you know. I think that, and, and I don't mean to say that in like some sort of conceited way, but I think that the w- what we're building here is is a job in, or a work environment that I certainly have always wanted, which is one where you, because of the asymmetric or the the asynchronous approach that we're taking, you really have the ability to, to define your approach, and you, you can you can tackle pro- problems every single day that are incrementally improving the company. Um, and you're seeing very high turnover in, in your work. So, so you're, um, you know, the app is developing at an unbelievable pace. And so each engineer, I think, is seeing that happening in real time. And yet they're, they're being able to, they're able to do this from different time zones, working at different times of the day uh, in a collaborative environment where they're, uh, I, I think, only having to produce the amount of documentation necessary um, to ex- explain like, the rationale and direct others to, you know, be able to pick up the breadcrumb trail if needed. And and I think that combined with a a group of people that I consider just brilliant and uh, engaging and fun and, and like the, the way that we're taking on a problem that has direct ties to so many of us, like there are just a huge number of people who have been touched by metabolic dysfunction, like in their family, whether through diabetes or heart disease or infertility and, and all of the different ways that it manifests. And it's a fun project to work on because you're, you're not only doing it in a, in an interesting new remote environment where you can travel and keep up, but also um, you're, you're taking on a complex and, and like, I think frankly compelling problem space 
with a new and interesting consumer technology. So it's just like such a huge blend of different things. And I, I hope that that's how, how someone might answer and uh, certainly how I feel. And, and I don't want to speak for anyone on the team, but I do feel that people are able to get up to speed quite quickly and, and seem to be reflecting back those, those, uh, feelings. Well, I, I'm sure we've both seen when, when leaders or organizations feel that way about the work, uh, a lot of times the, the, the people are with them uh, also feel that way. Uh, a lot of exciting things happening for you. What's just the most exciting thing right now that you're looking forward to or that the future holds for Levels? Well, I have to say that, you know, things are pretty unbelievable. Just getting to this point is, is amazing to have such a strong team the wind at our, in our sails, so to speak, you know, with, with our investment round, we're, we're well capitalized and we have a market that is just outpacing expectations. We have over 76,000 people on our wait list right now for the, for this product. And that's something that I certainly did not anticipate, but my, I think even more importantly, the product is making meaningful differences in people's lives every day. I mean, we get messages constantly from people who have seen dramatic improvements in their metabolic health and in their blood work for other you know, non-glucose related um, symptoms or, or I, was, I should say analytes. Uh, and so that's the biggest thing is that I, I am excited because the goal is manifesting right now and people are improving their lives with our product today. And we're only a year and a half in, you know, there's, there's a tremendous amount of work left to be done on a roadmap uh, just for really phase one of the company. And, and I just am super optimistic that we're going to take a big chunk out of the, the not only financially, but socially costly metabolic dysfunction that's ravaging every developing country in, in the world. And um, it's exciting to see progress towards that goal. You know, I, I would anticipate it would take much longer and I'm, I'm seeing the earliest signs now. I, I mean, I'm getting excited thinking about this. I mean, the, the huge problem you and I both love tackling and trying to solve big problems. So it's fun hearing about that. Two final ones here, Josh, uh, before we let you get back to the day. Uh, I know you mentioned not not huge into, in terms of books. You, you love more experience. Any books that have left an impact for you Oh yeah. You know, I, I like to, um, I love to read books about things I'm passionate about. And, and so two recent ones, uh, two recent ones I have to, to talk. Well, one very recent one, which is extreme ownership by Jocko Willink, uh, really reframes the conversation around, you know, what, what is in your control and how I think it's, it's ultimately a lesson on how you can allow your psychology to drive, or you can just easily eliminate all the emotional uncertainty of putting blame or shifting blame around and just take it on yourself. And that gives you power. It really, it, as long as you always know who is responsible, you can always iteratively improve. And, and that's a, a huge benefit, I think, for many people and certainly for me. And I, I'm going to read that book many times. The other book that I just have loved for, for business recently is No Rules Rules, uh, which is about the Netflix story and sort of the culture they've built there. I uh, highly recommend that. And lastly, I'm going to throw one out there that's totally different, but it's the Three Body Problem Trilogy by, uh, I always mess up his name, but Shishin Liu, who um, it's, a, it's amazing. It's, it's fiction, but uh, it's science fiction. And it talks about essentially what, what, the, what the book is about is the solution to the Fermi paradox, which is why we have not seen evidence of other life in the universe yet. And so it's uh, that, that trilogy totally changed my 
<laughs> my world. No, it's great. Three books, three different categories. Yeah, we recently had on Aaron Meyer who wrote um, with Reed Hastings, No Rules Rules. So anyone's interested in that, they can dive into that episode. Uh, Josh, final one here though. This, this has been a lot of fun for me. I'm walking away with just a ton of notes. I can't wait to go back and listen to this. But if you were gonna sit down, do this, an evening of conversation, just getting to ask whatever you wanted with anyone dead or alive, just who's not a family member, someone you'd love spending the evening asking questions with, who would that be? That's a great one. Um, Let's see. I mean, I have to say, I, I really would love to to dig in deep with Peter Atia. He's uh, he is a, uh, a a doctor, a physician, and a former surgeon, engineer. He's got a great podcast. But overall, I just love the way that he take he takes a very similar first principles, data driven approach. And I would just like to dig in. I've got so many questions, you know. And I think he he takes a very similar like borderline consumer approach to like getting this information out there and helping people make better choices. And I, I think he's by far the leading thought or the, the thought leader in the world of real-time bio information for uh, better health. And so right now, top of mind, would love to have that conversation with him. If, if that ever happens, I, I hope that's public because over the past probably four or five years, maybe uh, I, I've spent countless hours uh, listening to Dr. Peter Tia, studying his thinking. Um, so yeah, that, that's a conversation I would love to have. Josh, anywhere right. else uh, you want the listeners staying connected with you, um, checking out levels and maybe turning that wait list into 80,000? <laughs> Definitely. Please, please go to our website, levelshealth.com. And I, I recommend signing up for the wait list. We distribute our newsletter to, to that uh, that cohort. And we'll also be introducing, you know, obviously more opportunities to get into the early access program. And eventually we'll, we'll be distributing launch information through there, but also check out the blog, which is uh, linked from that homepage. And uh, that's a great opportunity to learn more about metabolism and also how it specifically touches each of us every day. I also recommend following along uh, member, many of our members share their stories on Twitter and Instagram at levels. And uh, I, I'm also at, at josh.f.clementi on Instagram and at Joshua's Forest on Twitter if you want to keep up with my stuff. Awesome, Josh. We'll have all that linked up in the show notes. But once again, thanks so much for joining us on What Got You There. Thanks so much, Sean. This is great. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.